Well, it really is a privilege again to, to be here and to, and to share. Um, I never take this for granted, not preaching, but being part of this family, um, being able to come here and fellowship and join together. We don't come here to sing songs or to have good meetings or to hear good sermons. We come here to meet with God himself and to fellowship with one another. And in our fellowship and our togetherness and our dialogue, we're being edified and encouraged and inspired and spurred on to run this race well. Um, so like I said, it's, it's a privilege to be part of a community that is about seeking him and knowing him and entering into an, a living, dynamic, intimate relationship with our Father that changes us. So this morning, um, I've got a hot topic for us to discuss this is one of those ultimate topics, the big topics, the meaty topics. Um, the topic this morning is God is love. God is love. Is that, is that a big topic or what? You know, um, back, back in the day I had a, a friend of mine who, you know, we, uh, who had a, had, had a thing about had a thing about love and we would come and dialogue and wrestle. We'd hear about love on a Sunday morning and he's like, man... I'm sick of this love thing. I want to get on to the meaty stuff, you know. But in actual fact, the love of God is, is, to be honest, probably the meatiest topic that you could ever get your teeth into. Why? Because God is love. God is love. It's the very essence. It's the very substance. It's the nature of who he is. And it's the nature that we are to enter into through his word being manifest within us. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 to 14. And you know, it says that he's given us his precious and magnificent promises so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, oh, the thing has slipped away from the screen, but we've been looking at the divine nature of Abba, or the divine nature of our Father. And for extra big-time Christian brownie points, who can tell me what is the nature of our Father? Love. Unfailing love, it's love, That's, it's the essence of who he is. But he says this, he's given us his precious and magnificent promises so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. So what are we becoming partakers of? Of him, of love. You know, it doesn't say he's given us his precious and magnificent promises so that we may be, become partakers of a good sermon. To become partakers of even coming along to a good service, to be partakers of a discipleship group, to be partakers of a healing or a miracle, to be partakers of any earthly thing. He says that we've, he's given us his precious and magnificent promises so that we may become partakers of the divine nature, which is love. And so in this passage, 1 John 4, 7 to 14 the title in my Bible in the NASB is God is love. 
And it's a good title, but when you read it in context, this passage is actually not just about God being love. We could easily say that the title of this passage could be the church of God are to become partakers of the divine nature and are to become love. It's a bit too long to put in there, so we'll just shorten it to God is love. But God is love, and it's the very essence and substance that we're to become. So point number one, if you've got a pen at the ready, if you're eager, taking notes like I know you all are, coming intentional to our gatherings with your word out, with your scriptures as Bereans, you know, eagerly anticipating, sitting on the edge of your seat, just poised, just ready to jot down those points that are going to penetrate your heart. Cool, we're all together. All right, so you're you're ready to go. Point number one, the goal of the gospel is not just about being loved, but about becoming love. I can say that again. The goal of the gospel is not just about being loved, but about becoming love. All right, let's read this passage and see if this is true. All right, uh, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we may live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now we're going to focus on the first two verses. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love doesn't know God, for God is love. You know, it's important to note that I didn't say that the goal of the gospel is only to become love. You know, the goal of the gospel is not just about being loved, but about becoming love. God has loved us with such an overwhelming, abundant love He called and chose us before we could even consider him, think of him, choose him, know him. It says that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die for us. It says he rescued us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Even in the passage that we just read, it said, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for for our sins. We've been called, we've been chosen, we've been set apart, we've been cared for, we've been forgiven, we've had miracles that have come, we've had healings, we've had signs and wonders. God is a God of love and he does loving things. He's loved us with an abundant love that we didn't choose, ask for, or even expect. 
When I was young and I was about 12 years old, I went along to a youth group. I was not even thinking about God. He wasn't on my radar. I had no real idea of what the gospel was, but there was a man who was prepared to take time out of his day to come and share about the love that he had discovered and that he had come to know. And he came to share it with kids. And I heard something and experienced something that touched my heart and impacted me in a way that I was altered for the rest of my days so far. I wasn't thinking about him. I wasn't seeking him. I wasn't praying to know him. He wasn't even on my mind. But God thought it was appropriate to send a man to share with me about the love of God. And I received something that began this process of now living relationship with God. The gospel is about being loved. But it's not just about being loved. It's about being loved and becoming loved. See, it doesn't say that the great mystery of the gospel in Colossians, the mystery of this gospel, he doesn't say is that God loved us. The mystery of the gospel is that Christ is in you, and that's the hope of glory. See, this is the message that has been lost in the modern-day Christian church. Not that God loves us. He does love us. But that we are to become partakers of the divine nature and that we are not just to be loved, we're to become love. That's the very heartbeat and the mystery of the gospel, to become love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Listen to those words. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So what is he saying? If you know God, you will love. It's not a trick question. It literally says that in the Scriptures. Knowing God... You will love. Intimate knowledge of the Father, you become love through the Word of God making manifest Christ in you. You can hear a pin drop. I hope it's because this is really simple but really important. He says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. No, he doesn't say that that those who know God will be part of a discipleship group. He doesn't say that those who know God will attend church services on a Sunday morning. He doesn't say that those who know God will join the music team. He says that those who know God will love. And out of love will then go and do all of those things and be found in all of those environments from a brand new living way that's come and made its home inside of them. You see the unity of this gospel? It's not, I know God, but I'm just working on a few things. I've had a bit of an, an anger issue. I'm a bit selfish. I'm... It's not this and that. If we're struggling with those things, it is absolutely and totally okay. But just be honest with the scripture and say, cool, I don't know God as I ought to know. What that means is that your salvation now has an opportunity to be founded on his power and not on your own ability to change and transform yourself. Paul calls it self-mutilation, trying to change the flesh. 
It's an earthly, man-made operating system that will leave you high and dry, trying your whole life to please him and never being able to please him. As opposed to receiving the substance of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory that changes and transforms your heart and gives you the capacity that you never had and were never born with, but were always predestined to be born into through the living word that abides and dwells inside of you. It's the power of the gospel, and it's for us. See, the goal of the gospel is not just about being loved, but about becoming loved. We've heard about the Israelites, how they were brought out of Egypt with signs and wonders and miracles by the mighty and powerful hand of God, only to find themselves in the wilderness without a true, actual, intimate knowledge of God that would be able to bring them the rest that God wanted them and had predestined them to enter into. He had brought them out, but there was something still lacking. They had been loved, but they failed to become loved. And so this, this, what, the writer of Hebrews says, is written for our instruction. It's to show us that a day still remains of entering his rest. If what I'm sharing about this morning is bigger than what you know, then I've got great, good tidings of great joy for you this morning. There's a new and living way. And if you hear with spiritual ears, the message of the gospel and receive it into you, it'll bring new, eternal, resurrected life in a way that you may have never experienced before. But it hinges not on your ability to do for God, but on believing in Him. See, the Israelites failed to enter not because they weren't good enough, didn't try hard enough, didn't have enough miracles, didn't have God coming through to save them enough times. It says that they failed to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. When you hear his word, do you harden your hearts? When you hear his word, do you hear, oh my goodness, this is possible? This is real? This is for me? Or do you hear, oh man, I've I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I just can't get it. I've put here, for many in the church, the gospel hasn't had this impact on them. But when you have your eyes opened to this realm, the entire focus of the scriptures shifts off God just loving you. It shifts off being loved to becoming love. And in almost every scripture that God talks about being love, it's followed by becoming love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, being loved. So that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will go to heaven, or wait, no, but will have eternal life. Being loved, becoming love. Try and separate them in the scripture. Go home tonight, read your Bible. See if you can find one without the other. Because 1 John says this, it says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
knowledge equals life. A simple gospel, right? When the gospel is one, it's simple. When it's one and the other, it's complicated. You've got to find your own way in, but you'll never find it. Let me share with you a scripture, Matthew chapter 18. Now, this is a tricky one because the letters are written in red. Um, so it means that they're quite important. The fact that they're in here is important. Let's have a read of this passage. It's a, powerful, a powerful parable that I think is so clear and so confronting that it is almost impossible to debate what it is that I'm talking to you about. All right, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had um, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience on me, uh, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a big time scripture, hey? Big scripture. So what, what can we see in here? We've got a king who has accounts with his slaves. His slave falls into debt with the king and gets to this point in his life where he just can't repay the debt. So he comes and he humbles and prostrates himself before the king and says, look, I'm, I'm done. I've got no way of repaying you. Can you please come and have mercy on me and forgive me the debt that I owe you? And you know, the king doesn't say, oh, well, um, just give me a moment. Let me just go and consult with my elders. 
Um, we're just going to have a bit of a chit-chat. I'm, I'm not sure about this whole mercy thing. Um, let me go and seek some wise counsel. Maybe we'll pray and fast about it, and then I'll come back to you in you know, a few months' time, and we'll make a kind of well-reasoned decision on whether we want to forgive. Why? Because he's love. And he's confronted with a situation that arises in front of him, and out of the reality that lives in him, because he is love, he responds in love. He doesn't need to whip it up. He doesn't need to conjure it up. He's a king, like we've heard about. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not insecure. He's not lacking resource. He's not lacking in mercy. He's not lacking in grace and kindness and compassion. He is love. And so out of the reality of who he is, in a split second, an, an innate reaction comes in, I will have mercy on you. I forgive you, your debt. It's cool. I'm not going to seek it anymore. But then the slave who's just been let scot-free, he's just been forgiven, he's just been shown mercy, comes to another slave who owes him money. And exactly the same thing happens. He comes to him and the other slave says, Oh, I am I am at the at my wits end, I'm done. I'm I just can't repay you your debt. Will you please have mercy on me? Forgive me and let go of the debt that you owe me. And he's like, Are you serious? Come on, man. Bring me my money. So what's going on here? Why did we see this response coming out of the man? What, what do we see coming out of him? Himself, exactly. Why? Because he had received love, but he hadn't become love. He had received mercy, but he hadn't become merciful. And so Jesus in this parable is pretty firm and upfront with people that just receive love but don't become love. Why? Because they have completely missed the heartbeat of the gospel. They've missed the purpose of what the mercy and the grace and forgiveness was for, which was never about his well-being. It was always about his transformation. And so we see here these words. Normally when people preach this passage, they stop at this point and don't actually read the consequences that's to follow. But it's to our detriment. Because would you not rather know that God is saying, hey guys, this gospel is not two but one. Would you not rather hear about the reality that, that, that we're being invited into? He says this, should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Like, this is not me making up something to try and be severe for the sake of getting a reaction. This is literally what the Scriptures say. But why do they say it? That's the big-time question. Why? Because something so important is at stake here. See, the slave was called not just to be loved, but to become love. 
And in forfeiting who he was called to become, he misses out on the entire inheritance that the king wanted to bring him into. See, the king's purpose in loving him and showing mercy was never to forgive him as dead. It was always that he would become love, become merciful, become forgiving. And that is the entire focus of this gospel. It's not that God would just forgive us so that we can get away scot-free and live however we want and then go to heaven when we die. The purpose of the gospel is that we've been loved so that we become love. We've been shown mercy so that we can become mercy. And in Romans, it talks about um, it, it, it talks about how this mercy is how we're to live. I, what's the scripture? Can you jog my memory? What is there? In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. See how this is a new and living way? He doesn't just say, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Come on, get on with it. He doesn't just, the parable doesn't start with the, the master or the king coming to the slave and saying, hey, I, I, I heard that you have someone that owes you a debt. Come on, be good to him. Just give him a shot. No, the king shows mercy. He demonstrates love. He embodies love. And then he says, if you were to truly know through intimate revelation of me, you would become the love that I'm now demonstrating and expressing. And that's the call for us as the church is not just to do things like him, but to become like him. And so we heard about the Israelites that it says that the word that they heard didn't profit them because it wasn't united by faith. It wasn't united by intimate knowledge. The gospel that this man received didn't profit him. It profited him in a very small, temporary way, but it didn't profit him with an eternal profit that actually changed him. Has the gospel profited you to the extent that your relationship with God is more than just having had your sins forgiven, but having become partakers of a divine nature? I'll put here, becoming love is the answer to every one of your problems. All of life facilitates an opportunity to become love. There's enough trials, tribulations, strain in everyday life for this work to be formed in you. It's the answer to every broken relationship, every struggle in your marriage, every issue with your boss. But what needs to happen is there needs to be a transaction that takes place in your heart and in your mind where you go from expecting people to love you to where you're becoming and have become love so that people don't need to treat you a certain way so that you can feel okay. But having had the form and the substance of love formed in you, you can love them regardless of how they treat you. And all of a sudden you're becoming a peacemaker in every situation. An issue with your child, an issue with your wife, an issue with your boss can be instantly resolved, not necessarily in what's going on around you, but in what's going on within you. As you enter into your covenant relationship with God, who transforms you on the inside, and all of a sudden you're living from an indestructible position because no one and nothing can take that away from you. No one can stop you from becoming like him. 
It's a powerful, powerful gospel that transforms every part of our entire being. All right, take a break for one second. All right, point number two. We are transformed and become love through an intimate revelation knowledge of who God is. So verse eight we've got here. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Therefore, a true intimate knowledge of God is what transforms us and forms his divine nature in us. You know, it says that God is love. Would you agree? It doesn't say that love is something that God does sometimes when he feels like it, or to some people and not others. It says that God is love. You know, I've heard quite a number of times growing up, people ask the question, um, excuse me, uh, oh, I lost my place. Oh, here we go. I just don't know how God could love me. Have you heard that question before? I just, I'm just not sure how God could possibly love me because of what I've gone through. I've mucked up so many times. I just don't know how God could love me. I'm not sure if you've heard that question before. Now, sometimes questions can be statements. And a question like that is actually more of a statement than it is a question. The statement is, I have no intimate, revealed, living knowledge of who God is. Why? Because if God is love, you wouldn't be asking the question about whether God loves you. Why? Because it absolutely has totally zero, nothing whatsoever to do with you. What does who God, what does who God is have to do with you? So the question, I just don't know how God could love me, is a statement actually of unbelief. It's a statement to say, I have no intimate knowledge of God. Why? Because God's love for you has no, is, is not influenced in any way by you. Imagine if we had the power and ability and capacity to change who God was. Imagine if our behavior changed who he was. We would be in absolute dire trouble, right? Imagine if Levi's behavior changed who I was. We would be in a very dysfunctional relationship. Imagine if God changed to incorporate himself into how you think that he should be. We're in really dangerous waters. See, this is coming from the wrong operating system. It's rooted in unbelief. And 1 Corinthians 13 talks about putting aside childish things, putting aside, um, you know, our thoughts about who God is and entering into an intimate knowledge, an intimate relationship with God through revelation that changes us. 
I put here, if you don't start with the revelation of who he is, life will shape your view of God. When you've got a challenging day, you'll wonder why God has made you go through what you've been through. You ask questions like people did in the Bible and say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? What, what thing did these people do that this tower collapsed onto them? And Jesus doesn't even entertain this for a second. He says, it's not about whether this, this man or his parents did anything born, to, to make him born blind. He said that this situation facilitates an opportunity for the glory of God to be revealed. So when you are changed in your thinking and your understanding, changed in your heart to see who God is and your relationship with God is founded on an intimate revelation knowledge of who He is, you start to express and ask completely different questions. Instead of wondering whether God loves you, you say, God, I am so amazed that you sent your son to die for me when I was yet a sinner. God, I am so amazed that your goodness is towards me. And now listen to this. It doesn't in any way minimize you being made aware of your true state. It actually gives you the, the, the security and the identity to be able to freely express where you're at without diminishing who God is. You're able to say, God, I am so thankful that your love is so big for me, regard, you know, completely irrespective of what attitude has just come out of me. God, I am so thankful that your love is committed to me, even though I've just been living in apathy and in lukewarmness and half-heartedness. God, I am so thankful. See how that's a very different way of approaching God than saying, I just don't know how God could love me. One is rooted in unbelief. The other is rooted in faith and belief and a living conviction of his goodness, which will lead to transformation. So I put here, just one second. So the point I was saying is we're transformed and become love through an intimate revelation of who God is. And I put here it is not, number one, the works we do for God, or even number two, the works that God has done for us that produce this life. But it's the intimate knowledge of who He is. It's not the works that we do for God. See, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do? that I may inherit eternal life. Jesus says, what are you talking about? Why are you equating good works with eternal life? When it's not good works that lead to life, but your surrender. You're letting go of yourself and laying hold of him. What good thing must I do? This place of trying to do good things for God to enter into life leads to absolute burnout, frustration, bitterness, disillusionment, mutating the flesh, coming into a, having a form of godliness that lacks power. You know, Tess at the moment is, is studying to be a midwife, and I feel like all of my typologies now are becoming about midwifery. <laughs> 
Yeah, thank you, Danny. Thanks for that encouragement. All the ladies will love it. <laughs> um, but there's so many parallels between the natural and the spiritual when you have eyes to see. And so Tess was telling me um, about this, um, you know, just this week about in pregnancy when when people are trying really hard to have a baby and, and there's, oft, you know, sometimes fertility issues, um, you know, a, a couple can be wanting a baby so much that it actually exasperates the problem even more. And in trying so hard to have a baby, it actually makes it more difficult to get pregnant. And so so often it happens that couples come to the absolute end of trying where they've gone for so long trying to get pregnant and it's just and it's just not working that they that they give up. They go and you know see a doctor and consider having, you know, IVF or um, or, or something like that and book an appointment to, you know. And a lot of the time it's at that moment where they finally come to the place and say, oh, we have tried and tried and tried and nothing's happened. And they just let it go. They give up. They say, cool, we, we've, it just hasn't happened for us. And they go in and book in at a clinic to get IVF treatment. It's, it's at that time that quite often people find that they actually naturally end up getting pregnant because all of a sudden they've let go of needing to try and have an intimate connection for the outcome that's attached to it. And they just say, we're done, we're not, we're not trying anymore. Put on your mature ears, but people just enjoy, you know, probably just enjoy having sex for the sake of it and, and enjoy the intimate connection and, and the togetherness without the, the stress and the strain and the pressure of trying to reproduce life. That life tends to just take care of itself. Now, a disclaimer, that doesn't happen for everyone. So, like, if that's something naturally that's happening to you, I'm not, you know, saying I've got the answers. But it's just a, it's a, it's an interesting typology of a work that we can't do in ourselves, but something that's formed and imparted in us through intimate connection, intimate knowledge, which leads to life. So hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. You know, in Matthew 7, verse 7, it says, Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Ask, and you will receive. Sounds like something you have to do, right? But then he says, But what father, who's, when his son asks for a fish, will give him a stone? And if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give to those Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him. So really, Matthew 7 is less about your struggle and strain to seek God, and it's more about your posturing and your belief that even those who are evil give gifts to their children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask for it? See, it's the intimate, revealed knowledge of who God is that changes us, not our own capacity to try and strain and struggle to form something in us through our own capacity and our own ability. I am so intimately familiar with this Matthew 7 verse because I heard about a life that was greater than what I knew. And that verse I felt like I held on to like a life raft on a sinking ship. Ask and you will receive, knock and you will 
what is it? The door will be opened. Seek and you will find. To what son when his, oh, to what father when a son asks will go without. And I feel like I held on to that verse like a dying man to say, this is all I have to hold on to, knowing that you have promised that if I posture myself before you in belief, knowing that what you've said is actually possible, then I would be able to receive you in a greater quality of life that I hadn't before. And that's been my journey over the last number of years that I've entered into more of him that I didn't even know was possible. But it didn't come from trying hard. It came from believing in who he is. So number two was, um, it's not, as I've said, um, it's not the works that we do for God. And it's not even the works that he does for us. See, Matthew eleven twenty eight. It says this, it says, come to me, come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. But then he says, learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you'll find rest for your souls. You know that verse when he says, come to me and I'll give you rest, that word rest means freedom and from, from your works, from your actions. Come to me and I'll give you freedom. I'll give you life. I'll give you love. But then he says, learn from me and you'll find rest for your souls. You know, the second word rest is actually not the same word as the first word rest. The first word rest is about ceasing from works. You know what the second word rest means? Inner tranquility. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you freedom from the things that are going on around you. I will give you miracles. I'll give you signs and wonders. I'll turn up in your life. I'll sort out situations. I will demonstrate my love to you. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Now learn from me so that you can receive an inner rest, inner tranquility, rest for your souls. See, the Israelites received rest from the things that were going on around them. They were plucked out of slavery in Egypt, but they failed to enter his rest for their souls. They failed to enter this inner realm of transformation where they weren't just freed from the things outside of them, but were made free on the inside with a rest that surpassed any outer thing and brought them onto an, an, into an inner rest was to bring them into an inner rest through intimate revelation. How's everyone doing? Restful. <laughs> Great. Hopefully rest in your soul. <laughs> Not so restful that you're falling asleep, hopefully. <laughs> Do you want to keep going or is that enough for now? All right, one more example. All right, John. <coughs> Not even in John. Does it, uh, 
John, John chapter 11. You've got your Bible, turn to John chapter 11. And here we've got a fantastic passage. John chapter 11 is all about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And I'm not going to read it because it's quite long, but I'll just paraphrase it for you. So Jesus has friends of his, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus is sick and on his deathbed. And so they call to Jesus and ask him to come and, and help, come and heal their, um, their brother, Lazarus. And Jesus is pretty chill about the whole situation. This guy's on his deathbed, and he says, actually, no, guys, it's all good. I'm just going to stay where I am for four days. And in the time that Jesus is waiting for this whole situation to unfold, Lazarus goes from being sick to being dead. Not a, not a particularly good look when you're trying to, you know, do good deeds and, you know, get a name for yourself, right? But Jesus is completely comfortable waiting those four days before going and seeing Lazarus. And when he turns up on the, on the scene, Martha says to him, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. My brother wouldn't have died. And you know, Jesus, he doesn't turn around and say to them, guys, did you not know that I could heal him? Does anyone know what Jesus says? Further on, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Interesting, eh? So resurrection wasn't something that Jesus did. Resurrection was who he was. And so Jesus looks upon the situation and he sees Martha and the family like desperately grieving and weeping over the death of his brother. And it looks, and Jesus looks not at Lazarus's dead body down in the grave that's been sick, he looks at the family that are grieving and their lack of capacity to recognize who he is, and he weeps, not because of the death, but because of the lack of reality that's in them. And so he says to them, guys, I've got a remedy for you. It's not that I'm a healer. It's not even that I can raise the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Why? Because if resurrection is something that he does, then they would be able to receive a resurrection and go on with their lives completely unchanged. But if he is the resurrection and the life, then an intimate knowledge of who he is would change not the world around them, but the world within them. It wouldn't just bring freedom and healing and transformation to the family dynamics and the family situation it would liberate them into a freedom above the situation through intimate knowledge, not of what he does, but of who he is. See, we sing songs about it. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Man, I can't sing and I've got a broken voice, <laughs> but just roll with me. That is who you are. Oh, wait. That is what you do. Oh, doesn't have the same ring to it. That is who you are. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. See, if love is something that God does, it's subject to change. 
But if love is who he is, he is totally unshakable and an intimate knowledge of him will bring you into the same unshakable, indestructible position of life that's available in Christ. So he doesn't say to Martha, hey, let me, let me resurrect your brother. No, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you were to come and know who I was, you wouldn't be weeping right now. You'd be rejoicing. Because greater is he that lives in you, the resurrected life that lives in you, that liberates you even above the death of a family member. It's not that he has no feelings. Actually, no, he just wept. But he wept not over the things around him, but the reality, the spiritual reality that he saw in front of him. He had compassion and a heart that was moved for a greater purpose. Not just a love that was for them, but a love that was to be within them. Not just being loved, but that they would become love. And knowing him as the resurrection and the life he knew was the antidote, not just to receiving love, but to becoming it. And so it's a powerful, powerful story of a God who loves us and a God who has come not just to do loving things, but to place his life and his love inside of us, not just being loved, but that they would become love. Cool. I think that's, that's us for the day. So, Father, I pray that we would become this people of love. Father, not just in the things that we do and the things that we say, in our actions, in our serving, in any natural thing, Father, but that we would become love in the substance and the life that is to live inside of us. Father, I pray that we would receive the word that's able to save our souls and free us not just from the world around us, but from the world that is within us. Father, I thank you that you have predestined and chosen us to become conformed to the image of the Son and that you're, com- you're as so committed to completing the work that you've started within us. Um, so, Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would minister and touch and change, renew minds, Father, and bring belief where there hasn't been belief in the past. Father, I pray for people here who feel like their hearts are hardened to you, Father, I pray for softness to come. Father, for repentance to see who you are, to trust in your love in a way that is bigger than what they've tasted before. Father, let us know you in an intimate and real way that changes us and makes us into the image of your Son. Father, I thank you. You're so committed to us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.